am a rooted, rooted. I am a rooted worker. I am a rooted. rooted. All right. Well, good morning, LCF. I want to start off with a little prize here. I have one Turkish lira for whoever can name that rap artist for me. Haven't heard it yet. It's not Lecrae. That's a great compliment for the person that it is, though. Still haven't heard it. Nope, it's not me. Definitely not. Joe Stewart. Who said that? Come, come on. This is worth 16 cents. You really need to get this. And you can only spend it in Western Asia, so now you have to come over. Yeah. Yeah, so Joe wrote that song last summer. If you haven't heard it yet, you got to hear the whole thing. He wrote it just to encourage our team. It's phenomenal, and so I'm not even going to try to touch that this morning. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Man, our time is running short. We only have two weeks left, but I'm so glad that uh, and so honored that I was invited to lead our discussion on Romans this morning. And so we're going to be in chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, we're going to finish the chapter today. We're going to start in verse 13. And as you're opening, consider this scenario. One brisk Saturday morning, I decided to go walking with my five-month-old daughter in the stroller, and we went to a park and we went on a walking track, because that's what people in Western Asia do. So we're walking around, and very soon into my walk, I heard a Western Asia man come up behind me and pass me from behind, and so as he passed, I looked at him and we exchanged some greetings And then he looked in my stroller and he said, why don't you put a few more clothes on your baby? She looks a little cold. Why don't you cover her up a little bit better? And one thing you need to know about Western Asia people is that this sort of barging into your personal space and your personal decisions is not a problem for them. It's just par for the course. Uh, I've heard so many things that supposedly if I do or don't do, I'll be harmed or I'll get sick. And if I listen to all of them, I would never drink cold water again. Uh, I would carry a blow dryer, hair dryer around with me wherever I went so that as soon as I dropped a drop of sweat, I could use it. And I would dress my kids up in like woolly bear suits and toboggans every time we went outside, even in the summer. And so when this man said this to me, I didn't really think too much of it. I just let it pass on by. I hear this stuff all the time. But a few minutes later, the Holy Spirit brought this same man to mind with the following thought. That guy lives in a country where Jesus is hardly even named. More than likely, he has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ by which he can be saved. And he's bold enough to talk to you about your baby and her health. Would you be bold enough to tell him how he can be eternally healthy? And honestly, there's no saints out there better than me. Come on, you've thought this before too. Honestly, my first reaction was, it's my day off, Lord. It's Saturday. The work week is over. I just want to rest. But the irony was, I was actually working on some scripture memorization at the same time while I was walking. And so the Holy Spirit came right back and he said, do you believe that scripture that you're memorizing right now? 
And I was working on Romans, I was in chapter 4, and I was in verses 6 through 8, in which Paul quotes Psalm 32, and he says this. He says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the psalm. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And the Holy Spirit said, do you believe that? And I thought, do I believe that? That I am blessed because instead of my sin being counted to me, Christ's righteousness is counted to me. And that conversely, that man is not blessed. He's ultimately unhappy because instead of Christ's righteousness, he will have his sin counted to him for all of eternity. Now, how could I possibly be ashamed to share a message with him that would bless him. And so I went to the bottom of the track and I waited there for him to come past me again. He passed and I didn't open my mouth. And I thought, okay, next time I'll say something. You ever been there before? Next time I'll say something. Well, he passed two times, three more times. Maybe I nodded my head at him, but no words, no opening of my mouth, and I decided it was time to go home. Despite my conscience screaming at me, I left and I went home. And I still remember that day, I attempted to comfort myself with the following thought. God is sovereign, and if he wants that man to be saved, he will save him. It doesn't really matter if you open your mouth or not. Question. Is that the right place for me to end up? Is that truth that I'm speaking to my conscience to try to appease it? Relegating my responsibility, taking refuge in God's sovereignty, is that correct? Keep that question in mind as we turn to the text, Romans 10, 13. This is the timeless, true, authoritative word of God. May our hearts be ready to receive it. 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Lord God, we look to you now and we see you holding out your hands inviting sinners to come to you, 
And we also see that you are sovereign over salvation. You're choosing, you're electing, and we come once again to marvel at your character, to worship at your throne. God, would you reach out your hands to us and touch us as we seek to understand you and your word, and please don't just leave us in a place of understanding. Move us to obedience, we pray, for your sake, for your name. Amen. Take a few minutes to remember the context of the section that we're in. Romans 9, 10, and 11 form a section with a theme within the letter. We're talking about the problem of Israel, and more specifically, why are there Israelites who are not saved? Why are most of them not saved? And, maybe more importantly, doesn't that call into question God? And his word. Didn't he tell Israel that he would always be with them and be like a father to them? Doesn't that call God's faithfulness and his word into question now that we see his chosen people on the outside looking in at salvation? And perhaps the key verse for this entire section is Romans 9, verse 6. And Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word can be trusted, it has not failed. Those who are descended from Israel, not all of them belong to Israel. Two verses later, he says, it's not about ethnicity. It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. And as Tim taught us so well in chapter 9, the plan was all along that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. God's word is consistent. His character is holy. There's nothing that can be called into question here. And in chapter 9, we saw that Paul's reasoning for why most Israelites are not saved is God's purpose of election. In chapter 10, we see another equally valid reason why most Israelites are not saved, their own unbelief. They are accountable. They are responsible. In today's section, we're continuing under that heading of Israel's accountability, her responsibility for her own lostness. Yet, there are also verses in this passage that allow us to zoom out and consider the lostness and the accountability of other peoples and of all people. And finally, we're going to ask the question, what is the responsibility of the church in this equation? So here's a preview of our time together. Four things we're going to hit on. Israel's accountability, number one, which I believe to be the main point of this passage. Number two, God's compassion. And these will be show up on the screen later, so you don't need to write them all down right now. Thirdly, we're going to talk about every person's accountability. And fourthly, the church's responsibility. So that's where we're going this morning. Number one, why are most of the Israelite people not saved? Well, Paul's answer in chapter 10 is their own unbelief. They haven't believed. Number one, Israel is accountable for her unbelief. Why and how is Israel accountable? Well, we saw last week, Romans chapter 10, verse 3, that they did not submit to God's righteousness. In fact, it says they tried to invent their own. Now, what is God's righteousness? Well, we'll look back to Romans chapter 3, and we remember that it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So we're talking about God's righteousness that is through Christ and his finished work that can be imputed, counted, credited to someone who believes in him. 
And Israel did not submit to this. They are accountable for that. Paul uses other words in Romans 10, 13, where we are today, and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here in the context, the name of the Lord is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. And calling refers to genuine confession that comes from one's heartfelt belief in Christ, his deity. We remember Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and it comes from heartfelt belief in his, the gospel of his life and death and resurrection and reigning in heaven now. And so, simply put, most of the Israelites have not believed and called on the Lord in this way. So they're not saved. But then in verse 14, Paul asks a series of four rhetorical questions that just might let Israel off the hook. Let's see if they let him off the hook. How then are they supposed to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? It is as if an opponent or an objector, the same kind that Paul has been dealing with throughout this book, is conversing with Paul and saying, wait a minute, the Jews haven't had a fair shot, so this accountability thing doesn't apply to them. Paul, however, is countering and saying, yes, they have. In fact, I believe from this, uh, the context of this passage, the reason why Paul is asking these questions is rhetorically to make the point that Israel has, in fact, enjoyed every condition that is needed for salvation. They've had sending, they've had preaching, they've had hearing beginning with Abraham, Moses, all the way through the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, his earliest followers, and now Paul, they have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul asks these questions and he says, every element needed for them to be saved is in place. Every element except one that he points out in verse 16. They have not obeyed. So what's missing in this otherwise successful chain of evangelism is their belief. They didn't believe. Who is to blame for this? Let me briefly explain the second paragraph, starting in verse 18, because we're going to spend most of our time back in the first paragraph. But here's what the second paragraph is doing. Who is to blame for their unbelief? Well, Paul says in verse 18 that Israel can't possibly make the excuse that they haven't heard because the gospel is being proclaimed in all the world that Jews are inhabiting. In verse 19, he says, well, they can't make the claim that God didn't tell them or they just don't understand because all the way back in the law of Moses, he told them what he was going to do with the Gentiles and with the gospel. And in verse 20, he's saying, oh, and he continued to tell them in Isaiah and the prophets. So they can't say, we haven't heard, we don't understand, we don't know. They have no excuse. They are more than accountable for the fact that they are not saved. And this reminds me of a situation in my own household in which I am often accountable for my own uh, lack of obedience, we'll say. Maybe this happens in your house too. Sometimes my wife gets to go out, I wish it was more often, by herself and have some time to herself. And a lot of times she'll ask me to do something while she's gone. And now I'm going to share an example about a time when this is very simple, okay? And she just tells me to do one thing while she's gone. Hey, can you keep the laundry going while I'm gone? Maybe this has happened to anybody. And 
all the conditions are set up for me. Like, she's even pulled the hampers of all the dirty clothes into the laundry room. They're all right there. The dryer's already running, so I have a constant reminder of what I'm supposed to do. She's told me clearly, and if that wasn't enough, there's a beeping sound on the dryer that says, hey, it's time to come in here and do something. Simple. Now, there are other times where there's a situation where it's just way too complicated. I'm not talking about one of those times. Like, you know those times when it's like, hey, I want you to wash the baby's clothes with that baby detergent. I want you to wash the Norwex cloths with organic bay leaves or something like that. I want you to wash the whites in the North Pole and the coloreds in the South Pole. I just can't do that. That's like salvation by works. No, I'm talking about a time when it's simple and all the conditions are laid out for me and when I don't do it and my wife comes home and she finds all the dirty clothes still sitting in the laundry room, who is accountable? No excuse. And in the same way Israel cannot argue that they're not getting a fair shot, just like me, they're accountable, condemned to their punishment of an evening of well, I'll leave the private matters in our family. But sometimes, most times, my wife has mercy on me and shows me the character of God, and I'm appreciative for that. But Israel is accountable. Now, before we jump to our second point, I want to zoom in a little bit on verses 16 and 21. Because they highlight even more man's culpability and God's compassion. Two things about verse 16. First, I want you to notice that Paul does not use the word unbelief here. He talks about disobedience. He uses the word obedience. They have not obeyed the gospel. This is consistent with his language elsewhere, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26, where he talks about bringing about the obedience of faith among the nations. More on disobedience in a minute. Secondly, verse 16. Notice which Old Testament text Paul uses to make his point. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now somebody either from memory or maybe a footnote in your Bible, tell me which chapter of Isaiah is Paul using here? 53. Anybody heard of that one before? Perhaps the most clear explanation of the gospel, substitutionary atonement, imputation of righteousness in the Old Testament that every Jew has. You've heard these verses before. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, but God has laid our iniquities on him. So it's as if Paul is saying, oh Jewish brother, don't tell me that you haven't heard. Don't tell me you didn't know what God is doing. It's plain before your eyes. What is missing is your response of obedience. You have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You have not obeyed the gospel. And in chapter 9, we saw that lost people are lost because God has not elected to show them saving mercy. In chapter 10, we see that lost people are lost because they have rejected God's offer of mercy. God's election, man's responsibility. God's predestining and God's pleading for man to come to him. How can it be both? You say. I wrestle with these things too. I do. And we've been having some of this conversation together as a church these last few chapters of Romans. 
I think Tim has done a marvelous job of holding these two things which seem to be in tension with one another that our faulty human brains can't comprehend and holding them to be true because that's what scripture teaches. And so I want to invite you to end up in a place where Paul ends up where he just says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments from him and through him and to him are all things. That's where he's going to end up at the end of this section, chapter 11. In verse 21, we see the very posture of God. All day long, he says, I hold out my hands to a disobedient people. Number two, God is compassionate, inviting sinners to come to him. His compassion is incomprehensible. It's undeserved. It's amazing. Oh, the many prophets that he sends. The fact that he would send his own son. Oh, sinner, I want you to think with me right now about who was the person he sent to you. Maybe it's a parent, maybe a stranger, a brother, a friend, so that you could hear the gospel. Oh, the compassion of God. The many ways and many times that he holds out his hands and says, here I am. All day long, he says. I hold out my hands with compassion. And friend, if you are here today and you are not following Jesus, I want to lovingly tell you that you're disobedient, as Paul says. You are walking contrary to the very thing that you were created for, and that is to worship your creator and experience all of the joy and fullness that comes in losing your life in him. He loves you. Consider the fact that he brought you here this morning, that you might hear his word and have another opportunity to respond to him in faith. Listen, be bold. Eternity depends on it. I want to invite you to come to the compassionate God whose hands are being held out today. The Israelites are accountable for their unbelief. We are accountable for our rejection of him if we do not believe. God is compassionate. His arms are open. Now at this point, because I believe the passage does this, I want to zoom out a little bit more beyond Israel and beyond even the people in this room. And I want to see if this accountability that we're talking about applies to everyone on the globe. To other peoples, I want to think about people that maybe haven't had the same kind of opportunities that we've had. Maybe they don't have the conditions laid out for them <clears throat> that Paul mentions in Romans uh, 10, 14, and 15. You know, what about the innocent man in the jungle in Africa who's never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus? What happens to him when he dies? The answer to that question is pretty simple. He goes to heaven. How can he possibly be held accountable for his unbelief? He's innocent, like we said. But what's the problem? That man doesn't exist. There, there is no such man. There is no innocent man in Africa or on any other continent because they're all what? Guilty. And I'm glad that we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because you've been through the rest of Romans to this point, and you know that no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. All have turned aside. 
No one does good, not even one. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man and woman on this globe has the witness of general revelation, God's creation. That's Romans chapter 1. Every single person on this globe has the witness of his or her own conscience. That's Romans chapter 2. And every single person has the witness of Israel's and his or her own inability to keep moral law, God's law, based on their own strength. All have sinned before an infinitely glorious God and have merited an infinitely glorious punishment. And so, we end up in a place, Romans 3, 19, where every mouth is stopped, and the whole world held accountable to God. Number three, every man and woman on this globe is accountable for his or her unbelief. This is a difficult one to swallow. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone is culpable for his lost state before God. Every person and every people group on the planet, including the 7,000 groups and the 3 billion people in them who woke up today with no access to the gospel, what state are they in? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Even those who don't have access to the gospel sit in God's wrath unless, until they place faith in Jesus Christ, calling on his name for salvation. I want to take a minute to deal with another objection that's often said at this point. People want to argue, well, okay, Jesus is the way to be saved. It's only through his blood, but can't God apply Jesus and his blood to somebody in a different way than that person having to understand everything and believe? I mean, can't God do that? Well, of course he can, because he's God. But that's not what we see in his word. And we're going by what we see in his word, and that is that there is sending, preaching, hearing, Genuine, heartfelt faith, confession, belief, calling. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26, maybe the greatest paragraph ever written. We have great theology in there, redemption, propitiation. But there's this phrase that we often miss. Every man is justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, comma, to be received by faith. This stuff doesn't just happen to people automatically. Okay, they're justified, redeemed now. No, there's a condition to be received by faith. And that's what we see in the biblical revelation. And so we don't just relegate our responsibility and say, well, they're on another system over there. The Bible's prescribed way for a person to be saved is to believe and call upon Jesus Christ knowingly. I took the question about the man in the African jungle from a teacher named David Platt, and he also makes the following point. Look at me up here. If we say 
that a person is only accountable for his unbelief if he has had the chance to hear the gospel, then the worst thing in the entire world that we can do is now go tell him the gospel. Because now he can choose to reject. Now he's on this system where he's accountable. That's not what the Bible teaches. As we see Paul and others laboring with their lives, putting themselves in danger, going to new frontiers so that the nations might hear the gospel and might believe in Jesus. So we leave our logic at the altar. We say, God, I want to be obedient to your word. And what does that mean? It means we come to this conclusion that they must hear. They must hear. There is no plan B. Plan A is that God sends people to preach the gospel to sinners so that they may hear about Christ and believe. When I was coaching and playing basketball, we always had a a plan B. If that player is covered over there, this player will break open and there will be a secondary option. There's not a plan B here. For a person to be saved, there needs to be hearing of the gospel, the kind of hearing that breeds true understanding, and there must be belief and calling upon the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone on the same system. Jew, Greek, American, Asian, reached, least reached, unreached, unengaged, rich, poor, morally esteemed, socially outcast, president, pawn, professor, pupil, pious, or pagan. No one is in another category. The only way for anyone to be saved is to call on the Lord Jesus Christ with genuine faith, and those who do not are accountable for their unbelief. So, friends, as we wade through these waters, what is the church's responsibility in this equation? What is our responsibility when we see unbelieving neighbors and unreached nations? Number four, the church is responsible to go and preach the gospel. If you were looking for something complicated, you came to the wrong place this morning. The church's responsibility is to go and preach the gospel. In this passage today, we have seen five elements of evangelism. We've seen sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. Now, we can do nothing about those last two. That's God's work in the life of a person who responds in faith. But the first three have been given to the church as our commission. Sending, preaching that they might hear. Because... They must hear. Now, before I urge us as a church to send and go and preach the gospel, I want to make a confession here. And maybe this will wake some of you back up because I know what just happened because it's happened to me before. When you heard me say, go and preach the gospel, some of you looked back in your bulletin and you said, oh yeah, this is that missions Sunday thing. And here comes the missionary to guilt me into being involved in missions. We got those tables down there and everything. Well, let me just fall asleep and we'll do this one mission Sunday a year thing and wake me back up next week when we get back to our normal study of Romans. 
I know that happens. And so here's my confession. When Joe told me that, hey, we're going to have you teach on August 26th, and it's also going to be Global Sunday, I was a little disappointed. Because I know that that attitude I just described can happen. Oh, yeah, this is the day when we let the missionaries go up on stage. We tolerate them for a little bit, and then next week we get back to normal. Guys, I know you. You know me. I love you. So listen to me with grace as I say this next comment. If we are not thinking about evangelism and missions, as we journey through Romans, then we're reading some other book besides Romans. We're reading our own ideas and comfort and what we want to get out of it into this book. Because this book is a missionary book from beginning to end. And sometimes we forget that in the middle of the book because sometimes we forget about the introduction and the conclusion to the book because we want the theological meat that's in the middle and it's all good stuff. But we need to remember some important things about Romans, okay? Paul is writing to a church that he's never visited, unlike his other letters, he's never visited. And why is he writing them such a long letter? Because he wants them, one reason why he's writing it, is he wants them to join him as he takes the gospel to new frontiers. Can you turn with me to chapter 15? A few more pages to Romans chapter 15. This is crucial to understanding Romans. Why would Paul spend so much ink on all this theology for people he doesn't know? Because he wants to get on the same page with them and he wants to be on the same team with them as they take the gospel to those who have never heard. Romans 15 verse 19 B. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named. This is what Paul sees his purpose in the body of Christ. So that it is written, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have not been able to come to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come see you, I want to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Oh, wait a minute. That's why Paul's writing to these people. He's got a purpose in mind. Why hasn't he been able to come visit them yet? Because he's been busy reaching unreached peoples and places with the gospel. Now, why does he want to visit them now? Because he wants them to work together with him in reaching unreached people and places with the gospel. And so we see that the people who are reading Romans originally, and us today, are to understand this glorious gospel and then to respond with urgency to take this gospel to those who need to hear because they must hear. So don't fall asleep on me as we have a few exhortations to conclude here. Let's talk about sending first. We see in Romans 10, 15, that actually the subject, the one who's doing the sending is God himself. God sends his messengers with the gospel, but the church we see in the Bible has a cooperative role to play in this. We see this in Acts chapter 13, church leaders at Antioch praying, worshiping, fasting. God says, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas, for this work. They say, all right, Lord, we're listening, we're there. The church has a role in this. And when we're talking about missions, the crossing of cultures to proclaim the gospel. The church's role in sending involves at least three things, and that's prayer, 
to discern God's will. Confirmation of one's calling and where they're going and then the actual administering of that person going. In 2012 and 13, when my wife and I and our teammates were praying about moving to Western Asia, we submitted that to the leaders of this church. We said, we don't want this to be our calling. We, we want you to help confirm and discern it with us. They did. And we have been sent by LCF. LCF is a sending church. And I might add that you are doing a great job. We feel it. We know it. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Are we praying as a church? Are we praying as we remember that the 7,000 people groups in the world who are least reached with the gospel must hear in order to believe, are we praying? Are we on our knees begging the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, Matthew chapter 9? On Wednesday night, we're going to pray, among other things. But we are going to pray. We're going to pray for God to break through, to break down the barriers, and burst through with the gospel in Western Asia and in other places in the world. You can come and pray for him to do that in your own neighborhood too, if you want. I hope you'll join us. But I gotta warn you to pray at your own risk because the same disciples that Jesus is commanding to pray in Matthew chapter nine, what do we see them doing in the very next chapter? They're sent out on mission by the Lord of the harvest. I believe there are people in this room today who are sensing a call from the Lord to go to new frontiers, to cross cultures even with the gospel. Probably not everybody, but I believe there are people in this room right now. And so I want to ask you to have the boldness to listen. Take a step of faith, of obedience today. Tell a friend. Ultimately, I want you to find a leader at LCF, whether it's a small group or a pastor, and allow this church to begin praying with you and confirming that calling with you. We don't have a shortage of resources here, so I don't want to hear that excuse. Joe Stewart would love to talk to you today. We got people from Crossworld in this church. If you want to keep your day job and consider doing it in a place that sorely needs the gospel, if you want to join a church planning team, we have Avant people here. If you're still confused and you want to know what we're even talking about up here and how to find your place in this mission, we got Brett Clemens and Perspectives. There's no shortage of resources here. So find your place. This train is moving. There's a handle that's at your height. Find your place and grab on, and let's roll together. So, as we conclude here, we're praying, we're sending, we're going, but we're not done. We must not forget that we've got to preach. We have to open our mouths. Guess what? We can celebrate that we have a team in Western Asia and we do all these great things, but you know what? Just because I have my feet in Western Asia doesn't mean that people are just going to magically place faith in Jesus. I got to open my mouth. I got to talk to that man on the track and say, look, let me explain this to you. Faith comes from hearing. Romans 10, 17. And don't get hung up on the word preaching. Like, well, I, I'm not a preacher like Drew and Tim. When it says preaching in this passage, it just says it's talking about speaking, being a herald, being a messenger of the gospel, speaking that to somebody else, proclaiming it. So let us open our mouths and speak the word of Christ. Guess what? I'm going to free you up here today. 
God can even work through your mistakes. He will. One of my teammates had a woman that he was calling on the phone who had questions about the Bible, and based on the information he was looking at, he thought this person was a man. So he called her Mr., and he called her a man, his very first sentence ever to her. Oh, how embarrassing. Oh, so he hung up the phone and never touched it again. No. He said, I have something to offer this person who's never heard the gospel, and he shared with her sin, judgment, cross, resurrection, eternity. Guess what? She heard and she believed. She called on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. It's awesome. There was a young man who I was supposed to call. I delayed it for a week. I was so nervous. And then I finally called him and he said, hey, I have questions. When can we get together? I said, oh man, this guy is hard to understand in the native language. I can't do this. This must be somebody else besides me that's supposed to do this. So I delayed it another week. What if I trip over my words? What if I don't say the right thing? Well, guess what? I showed up and I hid behind the gospel of Jesus Christ and he heard and he believed. Never underestimate the power of the articulated gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's why Paul says, I'm unashamed of it. We're offering God's righteousness to people, so we're unashamed of it. And don't let me hear you say, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm not sent like you're talking about. That might be true. You might not be a missionary that crosses culture, but you can cross the street. You can cross the room. You can pick up the telephone. The correct response to this passage is not, well, I'm not sent, so I must be exempt. No, the correct response is, here am I. Send me. Isaiah chapter 6. He sees this glorious God and his gospel, and he doesn't say, well, let me get into all this doctrinal debate now. No, he says, how in the world would you save me, God? A man of unclean lips. Why would you show your mercy to me? That's not fair. And so here am I. I'm going. Send me. Where do you want me? And so we walk across the room or across the street, or across the globe, or we pick up the telephone, we go to our family member, we go to a neighbor, we go to a stranger, and we go praying Ephesians 6, 19, Lord, give me words in the opening of my mouth that I may proclaim your gospel boldly. And we preach the word of Christ because they must hear I've never seen the man from the walking track again. Will he be saved if I or somebody else does not proclaim the gospel to him or if he doesn't hear about God's word or read it in another form? I don't think so. Now, is God sovereign over salvation history? Yes. Is he sovereign over individuals' salvations and that man? Yes. Yet Israel is accountable We are accountable. All people on the globe are accountable for their unbelief. And we, as a church, have a responsibility to go and preach the gospel because they must hear. I'm going to invite Brian and the team to come on up as I share one more minute here. I want you to consider your motives with me as you consider how you might respond in obedience to this message. We talked a little bit earlier about guilt Sometimes we hear the big E word, evangelism, or the big M word, missions, and we start to feel guilty, like, well, everybody else is going to go down to those tables. 
I guess I should probably do that. You know what? Nobody, we, we do not do missions out of guilt. We do it for another G word, glory. We do it for the honor of our Father who invites us with him to participate in the family business. We are honored sons and daughters. We don't have to prove anything, but we care so much about the glory and honor of his name that we say we want to see. He needs to be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue. He needs to be worshipped by my neighbor over there who's walking in rebellion to him. He needs to be worshipped by the man on the track. He needs to be worshipped by that tribe that's never heard of him because we care about the honor of his name. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's rise and worship our wonderful God.